Hello, it's great to be together today where we're going to be turning to Mark's Gospel in a new teaching series today called Broken, Lost and Found. And we're going to be looking over the next few weeks and months at incredible stories about how Jesus brings us home to God the Father. He reaches into our brokenness, into our lostness, and he brings us home into his family. And we're going to be looking at some beautiful stories of how God does that through his son Jesus in Mark's gospel. So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 1 in just a few moments. But before we get there, I want to say a massive happy Father's Day to all the dads, the spiritual dads, the grandfathers out there today in the UK where we celebrate Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. And, you know, being a dad has been one of the most immense privileges of my life. And in fact, just uh, last week, I moved my last child out of home. Uh, Lauren has moved in with some uh, with a friend in town, and it kind of marked a change of season of our own parenting. And uh, I, of course, cried like a baby when she left, and we had an emotional time, and not of sorrow, but of joy, actually, of joy in seeing someone who's grown to be uh, an, an adult and loving God and serving him. And being a dad has been an absolute immense privilege. I just remember coming out of the hospital when we had our first child, Lauren, uh, kind of carrying her out in a car seat thinking, I am now responsible for this human being. And I was 23 years old, completely clueless really about parenting. I'm like, do I not need to pass an exam to be able to take this child home? Um, you know, and I'm immensely grateful to God that despite all my uh, weaknesses and failings and shortcomings through the year, that I've got two children that I am immensely proud of. And parenting is a privilege. And of course, as we turn to Mark's gospel, we see the story of Jesus as someone who knew what it was to be fathered. In fact, Jesus says in John's Gospel, he says, I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. One of the primary revelations of God in the New Testament is that he is our heavenly Father. And Jesus lived his life on earth understanding what it was to be fathered by God. And we see this reflected right throughout his ministry. In fact, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his being. And so to understand what our heavenly Father is like, we look at the life of Jesus, who not only obeyed the Father in his own life, but also reflects to us what God, the perfect Father, really looks like. And so today, as we turn to Mark chapter 1, we're going to see three truths about the father that Jesus reveals at his own baptism in the River Jordan. And so we're going to consider these three truths on Father's Day today in our new series in Mark's Gospel. So if you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 1, we're going to dive into verse 9 and let's read together. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As soon as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens breaking open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Beautiful little 
story here of Jesus' own baptism. And I want to show us three truths that we see about our Heavenly Father through this baptism encounter of Jesus. And the first truth is this, is that our Heavenly Father is a father to the unseen. He's a father to the unseen. It's almost a throwaway line in Mark's gospel, and Mark is known for his suddenlies. His account is the briefest and the quickest account of all the gospel writers. Often Mark uses words like suddenly in his accounts, and it's a very fast-moving story. And so here it's just a throwaway line. He says, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John. Now, uh, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is causing an absolute storm at this time in Israel. He is baptizing the River Jordan. He's this kind of slightly crazy Old Testament prophet guy who eats locusts and honey for breakfast. He wears a camel hair coat. He's somewhat eccentric, but he is preaching this message of repentance. And whole towns and villages are emptying to go and hear John's message, but also be baptized by John in the Jordan. And something happens in this moment to John the Baptist that he perhaps didn't expect was that he sees his own cousin Jesus stepping out of what were really 30 years of obscurity living in Nazareth to be baptized by him in the Jordan. Jesus was a carpenter. He made tables and chairs for a living. If he had a white van in those days, he probably would have driven one. He was a kind of working man's man doing a a laborer's job. And it was in this very obscure village called Nazareth. Now, these days to us, that may not mean very much. But if you could just jump in your time machine with me for a moment, let's just go back and try and understand Nazareth in its context in which Mark was writing these words. And Nazareth was an extremely tiny village in the northern backwater province called Galilee. In fact, Nazareth was so insignificant, it didn't even make it onto the list of the official lists that we have of the time of the towns in Galilee. So in the Hebrew Talmud, it lists 63 villages in Galilee And Nazareth does not even make the list of 63 villages. It was so insignificant and small. Likewise, the the first century historian, Josephus, when he listed his 45 towns and villages in Galilee, again, Nazareth does not even make the historian Josephus list. It was so small and so insignificant. Um, What we know from archaeology is that Nazareth, at the time that Jesus grew up there, was a town or a village of probably no more than between 100 and 400 people. In fact, many historians say it was probably much smaller. So think Jesus is growing up in an environment of maybe 100 people. That's what Nazareth was like. It was 100 people. Tiny, obscure village, so obscure it didn't even make any of the official lists of his day. And that was in contrast to some of the other bigger towns in Galilee at the time. So Sepphoris was one of the biggest towns in Galilee. It was about 30,000 strong population and Sepphoris was like a modern day Milton Keynes. Like it was it was a kind of affluent place that you would go shopping. It was a prosperous place. There were lots of opportunities. Um, Everyone from Nazareth uh, would have walked an hour to sell their goods 
in Sepphoris because that's where all the trade and the commerce and the affluence really was. Whereas Nazareth was a, a small town of farmers and shepherds and carpenters. Very, very kind of blue collar, downbeat kind of place to live in. And so you get this uh, incredible truth that Jesus came from Nazareth to be baptized by John. And we get this little snapshot as to what people thought of Nazareth at the time of Jesus. You can read about it in John chapter 1 verse 45 where Philip, one of the disciples, goes and finds his mate Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, we have found Jesus. He's the Messiah and he comes from Nazareth. To which Nathaniel replies, the Messiah from Nazareth. And then he utters the immortal line, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, people have sometimes said the same about Bedford. It's rude, I know, but can anything good come from Bedford? This story should give us all hope. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It was so looked down upon that it was scorned by people of Jesus' day. And yet here's the truth. It was in Nazareth that Jesus came to know the Father. It was in Nazareth, in a place of obscurity, in a place of weakness, in a place that was looked down upon, in a town that was forgotten even by the historians of the day, in a town of no opportunity, in a town that had no social status. It was in Nazareth that Jesus came to know his heavenly Father for 30 years before he then steps out of that town and gets baptised by his cousin Jesus. And this gives us a window on what our heavenly father is like, that he is a father to the unseen. He's a father to the weak. He's a father to the foolish. He's a father to the forgotten. He's a father to the ones who've been left on the shelf by everybody else. He's a father who makes a beeline for those that have no qualifications of their own. He is a God who rushes to those. And I, for one, am extremely grateful for that. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, 1 verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are. See, our God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He overlooks Sepphoris, but he picks Nazareth. This is amazing. It's an amazing truth about our father. He's a father to the unseen. And Nazareth, many writers say that Nazareth probably was given its name out of a prophetic Old Testament prom promise. The word uh, Nazareth comes from the root word Hebrew netzer, which means branch or shoot. And uh, often what happens when a tree is chopped down from the stump of the tree, a new shoot will grow up from the, the stump of a cut down tree. And there's this beautiful prophetic promise in the Old Testament that promises that one day from the, the stump of Israel, from the de destruction of Israel, a stump, a shoot will rise up, a new branch will start to grow. And, and, and the, the prophetic word is that that, that shoot will be the Messiah, a saviour who will come and save and redeem Israel. 
Hebrews 11 verse 1 puts it like this. A shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse, who was King David's father, and a branch, that literally word is Netzer, from which Nazareth gets his name, shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Many people think that Nazareth was given its name from this word Netzer, this promise that one day out of destruction a shoot will grow up and the Spirit of the Lord will be on that shoot. Little did the founders of Nazareth know that one day that very Messiah would be raised in their very own town, their backward, nowhere, northern town. God would choose that town to raise the saviour of the world. In that town, he would raise a son who would literally transform the whole cosmos. This is what we understand. God is a father to the unseen, to the humble, to the weak, to the lowly. And so today, if you're listening to this and you're like, that is exactly how I feel. I feel unqualified. I feel weak. I feel forgotten. Well, I've got good news for you. Your heavenly father is a father to the weak and to the unseen. Jesus came from Nazareth. The second truth about the father from this passage is that God is a father worth living for. God is a father worth living for. In fact, giving everything for. And here we read that Jesus came and was baptised by John the Baptist. And we know from the other Gospels that John was extremely reluctant to baptise his cousin Jesus. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And John's baptism was for three things. Number one, it was to repent. Number two, it was to confess sin. And number three, it was to flee the coming wrath. That, that was John's message. Repent, confess your sin, and flee the coming wrath of God. And so people were coming from the towns and villages to be baptised by John for those three things. And so Jesus rocks up and says, John, I'd like you to baptise me. And John is understandably reluctant because Jesus did not need to repent of sin. He did not need to confess any sin. And he didn't need to, to flee the Father's wrath because he was perfect. He was God incarnate. And so John is reluctant to baptise Jesus, but nevertheless, Jesus gets baptised. The question is, why? And what does this show us about the Father? Well, let's just think for a moment about John's message. John's message essentially was one of repentance, which means to change one's thinking. And repentance is a message not only of turning away from something, but also turning towards someone else. We're turning from something, but also we are turning towards someone else. Repentance is not just leaving sin, it's actually cleaving to another. It's dedicating ourselves to something else. And so Jesus' baptism, I would suggest you, demonstrates not that he needed to turn away from any kind of sin because he was perfect, but rather his baptism shows, I am living my life dedicated to serve and obey the Father. Jesus' baptism was a baptism of obedience, of devotion, of dedication. He was saying, I am living my life for the Father and nothing else. It's him or nothing. And Jonathan Pennington, one theologian, says this. Even as a virgin born, divine incarnate, unique person in the world, the son, Jesus, desires to be wholeheartedly obedient to the father. 
Thus, he must submit to the God-ordained message of life dedication preached by John. So why did Jesus need to be baptised? Because central to Jesus' purpose in being the saviour of the world is his own faithful obedience to the Father. Jesus is showing us that the only fruitful, meaningful way of living in his, is in absolute dedication to the Father. He is the only one worth living for and he is worthy leaving everything else to devote your life towards. Jesus' baptism shows us he's a father worth giving everything for. Friends, I just want to call you and myself in this season to just throw all our eggs in one basket and again, dedicate our lives to a father who loves us and is worth living and dying for. Jesus' baptism shows us this about the father. This is the only true way for sons and daughters to live dedicated to God. And then the third truth that we see in this passage about the father is that he is a father who showers affirmation. And we see this in this amazing Trinitarian moment. It says in verse 10, as soon as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens breaking open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. This is a, a moment of breathtaking Trinitarian revelation. There are few passages like this one where we see Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons in just a few short verses. The Son is baptised. He hears the voice of the Father in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is a beautiful and powerful moment of intimacy between the members of the Godhead. And Jesus in this moment his three essential things that will sustain him throughout his whole ministry. Three vital things. I am loved, I am a son, and God is well pleased with me. Those are three things that sustain Jesus in his ministry for the next three years. I am loved, I am a son, and my father is well pleased with me. Uh, friends, I, I wonder if you've heard those three things from your heavenly father in your heart that you are loved that you're his child and that he's well pleased with you and you know the first one of those i am loved deals with what he is jesus understands my life is now defined by the fact that i am loved i am loved by god i'm not rejected i'm not unaccepted i'm not on the outside i'm loved by my father it defines who he is the second deals with his identity that I am a son that is fundamentally who I am therefore I carry the authority of the father I, I belong to him and when I minister I minister out of the overflow of the authority of the father in whose shadow I live my identity is that I'm a son and then the third deals with where he is. It deals with his position, his standing in God, that I am living in this space of being a pleasure to the Father. He delights in me. I bring him delight. Deals with who he is, what he is, and where he is. And these three things would sustain Jesus in the rest of his miracle. Before Jesus had done any kind of miracle, before he performed any healings, preached any messages, he hears a life-sustaining truth from his Father in heaven. You're my boy. I love you and I'm well pleased with you. 
Friends, I tell you, this is an absolute game changer to have an encounter with a father who showers us with affirmation. And I don't know what your kind of background, maybe you're not yet a Christian and your view of the father is that he's somehow kind of a, a fist waving, angry deity that just wants you to toe the line and to stop it. Maybe that's your view of the father. Or, or maybe you're, you've been grown up in a religious household where you've been told that the, the father is about duty rather than delight. It's about the, the A's and the B's, the rules and the regulations, rather than living out of an overflow of delight. Well, wherever you are, I've got good news for us. You have a father who loves you, who calls you into sonship or daughterhood, and wants to tell you he is well pleased with you. You know, I remember when I first saw my daughter when she was born, all those years ago, I just instantly loved her the moment that I saw her. She'd not contributed anything. She'd not yet done anything that would deserve praise or admiration. She was just born into our family and I loved her instantaneously. And I tell you, that is how your father views you and I. He loves us because he made us. We were born into his family through our faith in Christ and he loves us. So here are three truths about the father. He's a father to the unseen. He's a father worth giving everything for. And he's a father who showers affirmation on us. And as we go through Mark's gospel together over the coming weeks, we're going to see many, many vignettes and pictures of what the father looks like through the son, Jesus. And so today I just bless you with these truths. Think about these things. Change the way that you think. Maybe like Jesus, it's a moment to freshly dedicate yourself to live for this Father who is worth giving our whole selves to. So God bless you today. Amen.